Welcome to Context, a podcast that explores different places through different lenses with an architectural focus. Okay, welcome to yet another episode of Context with a K, because Context with a C was taken. Uh, today, we will be speaking to Charlotte Airy, a dear friend and colleague who is also studying or reading an MPhil in Architecture and Urban Design at the University of Cambridge. And I'm Kinsani de Klerk, speaking to you from a really spring-like Cambridge in a generously sized room. And we're in the middle of a pandemic. And I suppose that's the, the intro to this podcast episode. Um, Charlotte, tell us a bit about yourself before we get into the, the interesting conversation. Oh, my. Um, OK. Um, I am from New Zealand. Um, I've been living in the UK for about uh, six or seven years now. I've lost track. Um, I came here to study architecture and I really like um landscape and nature and, and I really miss home <laughs> um what I'm interested in uh I like painting and all that stuff so yeah okay <laughs> um yes for those who who don't know uh our program is structured that everyone in our class has a specific site has a specific respondent group has a specific theme a lens and uh yeah, most of us choose places that we're local to or that we're interested in or that we research. And so this would be the point in our research where we would be going back to or going to the our respective places of interest. And uh, yeah, Charlotte, if I'm correct, you're you're in London right now, but you're you're focusing on a site in New Zealand. Yeah, so I'm sort of um, stuck in lockdown in, in London. Um, I tried to make it to field work um, on the day that New Zealand closed its borders um, and all my flights got cancelled. So I'm sort of like gazing at images of kind of New Zealand coastlines from afar, um, doing as much research as I can. I suppose that might be an interesting way for us to segue into the topic. And yeah, I mean, we discussed this a little bit before via email. Yeah, considering that you're sitting kind of afar from your site and and taking in information whilst not being on the ground it it kind of brings up the word consumption to mind and that's that's something that we're luckily able to do in times when we're when we have geographic constraints but at the same time something that's quite that's got quite a twisted side to it which is inherently linked to capitalism consumerism and uh, the theme that you suggested was was one of the things that you'd speak about would be commodity and and consumption and i suppose yeah how are you feeling in your position right now uh reading a site through the, through a sort of consumed method yeah i mean it's it's interesting because um so my site is New Chum Beach, which is um, quite now quite a popular holiday location in New Zealand. And it's it's kind of become famous because of the fact that it's undeveloped. Um, and at the same time, it's become the sort of image of of um, of like pristine nature um, to be consumed by tourists um, nationally and abroad. So. 
So from kind of afar, not being on the site, the images that I'm coming up against are sort of like travel articles where it's kind of very much like packaged as this product to be consumed, to be kind of kind of Instagrammed at sunset. Um, and it's, it's kind of interesting because I'm trying to kind of subvert that aspect of it and look at it in a really kind of grounded perspective with the history, which is actually much more problematic. So I'm trying to like do this study of the of the land without having been there through images that have been filtered through this kind of perception of what landscape and nature should be so it's kind of interesting at the moment um trying to break through that and see past the kind of superficial aspect of the image yeah yeah I mean I suppose it's interesting to, to read into historical images and and texts that are of course subjective because they were captured by, by by various researchers, various authors, but also kind of draw inspiration from those motifs in a way that confronts or celebrates the fiction, the fictional aspect, and and then also brings through the heritage. But then on the other side, it makes me, I mean, these are all very provocative questions. It makes me it it makes me wonder how heritage is also an extreme driver for for consumerism and for tourism. And is that this is that the situation in New Chum Beach? I mean, would you say that's a beach? That's New Chum Beach, an area in. <laughs> yeah, um, it's interesting because the question of heritage in New Zealand is quite a, a complicated one in a way. Like, so there's obviously like it's it's there's a kind of really brutal colonial history, so some aspect of of the heritage that we see kind of portrayed through through tourist media is partly kind of I guess I guess it kind of because our sort of main tourist asset is is sort of wilderness and nature it sort of portrays nature itself as as heritage um Mm -hmm. which which completely erases this kind of history of of I guess layers of sort of intervention with the landscape be it from kind of Maori people through their own settlements and and kind of adaptation to the climate environment and horticulture, as well as kind of land wars and the kind of inherently colonial aspect of of actually defining nature and and enclosing it in reserves and sort of, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a sort of weird, you know, like we we talk about our natural heritage and our our wild heritage as if it. It's been like that since before humans arrived and we've maintained it um, in such a way that we can experience it like a, a world before humans, which is like it's it's a really tricky thing because on one hand, it's it's sort of, I guess, validated by the idea of, you know, like climate change and and the need for kind of forest and ecology and ecological biodiversity and all that sort of thing for like kind of scientific reasons but at the same time the idea of it as it's being portrayed through the kind of lens of tourism is really problematic. I mean I find this extremely interesting and also I suppose higher up on the let's say list of priorities and issues of yeah issues on the flag list for developments which is of course the domain in which we function as as spatial 
spatial practitioners in the making. <laughs> yeah. Don't call yourself an architect if you're not an architect, anyone out there. It's <laughs> yeah. illegal. <laughs> but, um, yeah. <laughs> your your description of, of heritage versus the, the very, of course, uh, grim history of colonialism itself uh, reminds me of a a very short lecture that we had by Nick Simchik, who is yeah, an academic and teacher at in our department at Cambridge on property, you know, property, even the abstraction of property itself being linked to or being justified as as heritage. Property, how we have it now, all of these second uh, second homeowners having their batch or having their holiday home on New Cham Beach, and then like taking it back a step in history to colonialism, which was just about, you know, con- conquering a land and and then and then that that retaining a sort of history and heritage by virtue of these abstract boundaries drawn on not even drawn on the land. I wonder how people perceive the idea of restricting property ownership. I'm trying to understand New Cham Beach as a development, like who owns majority of that land and is is there hope for it being or returning to a sustainable site which is shared and not necessarily consumed by a limited group of people? Yeah, it's a really, really important kind of question and it's one of the really big debates in New Zealand at the moment, which, um, so the beach itself, the land kind of around it and right up to the high tide mark is privately owned and that that land is um owned jointly i think it's like a few parcels sort of running up and down the coast that are a result of subdivision since the 1850s 1870s actually Mm. i think and that land's been actually farmed for quite a long time um so it's pasture land at the moment which which is interesting because the beach itself is kind of this enclosed wild looking environment so the beach at the moment the controversy is that the land is currently jointly owned by a couple of developers i think and they have proposed several subdivision plans and development plans which will divide up the land further Mm -hmm. and build houses on that land so these obviously going to be luxurious like the land will be hugely expensive mm-hmm. given the like publicity and the kind of iconicness of of the, of the area so part of the problem is that the people who already know the land the land like the beach itself who go there regularly be it kind of local residents who've been going there for decades or who have just moved there and it's like their home um like however these people claim sort of belonging, they kind of, the the idea of developing and subdividing this land is kind of perceived as being like a threat to the environment of the beach. So it's a really complicated position because, so everybody is caught, well, all the people who are against the development are calling for public ownership. Mm -hmm. But what does public ownership mean? Um, Public ownership means that the government buys the land Mm-hmm. which they can't afford because it's so valuable. But then who who gets to access it? So if it's ac- accessible to everybody, that is a threat to the wild atmosphere. And it actually it's already increasing in popularity now just because of the activism surrounding it, which mm-hmm. is ironic. It's like, wow, you know, we have this amazing wild landscape and it's 
in the top 10 beaches, according to The Guardian, which increases tourist activity, which inc- mm-hmm. decreases its kind of value. So it's this really difficult kind of... You could, The developers arguing that privatising the land around the beach for the, the purpose that they're proposing will actually increase the ecological value mm-hmm. because there will be kind of management, there's like a managed landscape management plan that they've proposed as well as protecting the um the kind of beachfront in a public covenant. So mm-hmm. so their proposal actually in some ways improves on the condition at the moment. But mm-hmm. for some reason there's like still a kind of sense of identity loss because of the private it's it's really complicated. I, I mean, this is so contested. Yeah. This is really contested. I mean, just I suppose the one thing that we're all being confronted with right now is population growth, the excessive use of all public spaces, the scarring of landscapes. Once a road is built, once concrete is set, it's never becoming sand again. I mean, it's yeah. the end. But on the other side, I wonder how the current land use management and public space conservancy departments in New Zealand are are dealing with other sites that are publicly accessible because you know in the end it's it's also quite yeah as you've mentioned it, it's it's quite democratic if you like <laughs> mm. to to allow people to embrace uh sites that that they have shared memories or shared attachments to at the same time yeah i also wonder on on the note of consumption yeah, how, how one does use the leverage of private development, which doesn't seem to be taking a downward turn anytime soon. Mm. As, as architects who, because I suppose it was, it's, it's quite interesting, I'm, I'll, I'll digress for a minute, but yesterday or the day before there was a talk by the AA School of Architecture or a symposium about urgent matters. I mean, finally, some some provocative manifesto-driven talk that architects are getting involved in, urgent matters. And someone mentioned how, as architects, we're in a very awkward and and paralyzed position in that we have the the skill sets to service building. You know, uh, we we work within the domain of building, and that's something that we we manifest concepts into reality, which is an, an insane position to be in. But then on the other end, we also have no power. And so we're kind of subservient to to also making ends meet and you know the client has the money. And so yeah, I wonder if there are if there if there is a sort of architectural presence in New Zealand or in your work or in, in research that you've come across that thinks about leveraging or collaborating with private developments in in favor of an, an ecologically sound future. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting in New Zealand because um, I'm not sure if it's the same elsewhere. I've sort of come across a lot of examples of actually people, um, private owners of land um, engaging in kind of a stewardship um, of the land around them. Um, And uh, a lot of them are farmers as well. I'm not sure if, if architecturally there is a presence trying to solve this problem. I do know that there's there's quite a big world of landscape architecture in New Zealand and land management, which look at kind of integrated farming methods. So trying to kind of 
respond to kind of um, ecological features in, in the land and, and kind of dividing up and kind of, you know, just nurturing an environment while still kind of drawing economic value from the land. There are, I know there are socially kind of oriented architecture practices which look particularly at Māori housing and, and using very cheap local and kind of, I guess, ecologically sustainable materials from the landscape. So recently I've been looking at uku, which is a, a, a kind of rammed earth Ooh. technology which uses flax fibers um, and it's just a case of like literally you know finding it in the earth finding your flax and mixing it all up and, and it can be done very cheaply and um, sustainably but I mean that's sort of another realm of building. That does spark to my mind something quite interesting I made a note before we had this conversation about and it ties into I suppose building materials now and that's mm the yeah the kind of tendency for modernist and architectural history the uh, the approach to design is one of permanence and durability and maximize the lifespan of a building and i suppose the biggest implication of that is on the environment like mm. the footprint will never disappear and on the other side or the antipode is yeah and and correct me if i'm wrong it's more a question than a statement but you know, using these natural resources, flax, or thinking about touching the earth lightly, sort of establishes a different form of built heritage because the building is only there for a certain amount of time and then it's carried or adapted by different cultures and, and perhaps it follows a different lifespan in relation to the landscape. And is that something that you're thinking about or that you've come across in, yeah, this, 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 did you say uku? It's the name given to the technology by um, a guy called Kepler Morgan. He's a he's an engineer um, and he's done quite a lot of work um, developing technology and, and also like sustainable frameworks for Māori kind of governance and building and, and that sort of thing. He seems like a really interesting guy. But yeah, the, the idea of like building in New Zealand and architecture, yeah, I don't really know because I've been living here for such a long time that I've and I've done all my education here, I feel a little bit outside the discussion. I can only speak for kind of my own, you know, childhood and, and you know, early adulthood spent there and my experiences of building there is there's a kind of, I guess, identity crisis. Like, I think mm -hmm. it's called cultural cringe. It's a kind of typical of new world countries who is finding it difficult to sort of create their own national identity without sort of reference to the old world. Yes. Cultural cringe, what a term. I, I mean, I guess one way of describing it is like an inferiority complex with regards to a much older country. Like, for example, Britain, New Zealanders called themselves British until quite recently, comparatively speaking. Mm -hmm. This is like beyond my history knowledge now, but... um. New Zealanders have been kind of continuously trying to kind of assert their own um, identity as kind of valid and, and you know, unique. Um, and that this is part of the whole nature argument as well as is, is kind of defining yourself as this grounded in, in a place and a kind of, um, you know, like a way of doing things. The central theme that's been going on in this conversation seems to be consumption. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, I will say, I don't know if you've ever come across, um, what is it called? Tiny, tiny homes or something. Oh, yeah. yeah. Tiny homes, small homes. Tiny yeah. homes, you know, these YouTube channels, tiny homes, small house, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And really romantic, perfect architect's cup of tea where designers, <laughs> for those who don't know what we're speaking about, where designers kind of take you through a small house that they've designed and built and it's super convenient it's about maximizing as little space as possible under the impression that the smaller the footprint the better for the environment unquest like unquestionable but at the same time I uh, from my from my knowledge a lot of those homes are second homes and a lot of those homes yeah. are, are sort of you go into the middle of a, a Swedish snowscape and you live in your house for two weeks of the year and then you go back to New York and that's where your your main residence is. And so that that's the design image that comes to my mind. Hyper modern, but still in nature. So it would be interesting to for us to understand what the image of homes on New Chum Beach look like at the moment. Yeah. So I think, yeah, like what um is important to kind of establish is, is the idea of batch, the batch in New Zealand, and the batch is kind of like the summer home, the holiday home. Do you know where that word comes from, batch? Yeah, so it used to, it used to be a verb um, to batch, um, mm. and it came from the word bachelor, because okay. it was, if you were batching, you were basically going and kind of going to live with your other fellow single men um, for work or whatever. So it's, it was like a very male, like this was at the kind of the turn of the century, last century, not this one. So the kind of the batch, as we know it, sort of now, it's kind of, split into two kind of conceptual realms, I guess. Like one one is this sort of idea of this romantic, um, really, really no frills kind of self-built dwelling in the middle of nowhere with, you know, no running water, mm-hmm. no electricity, really roughing it and kind of self, you know, re- it's kind of a really individual masculine way of relating to nature, mm-hmm. um, but also like a really sort of reclusive and solitary thing, which a lot of families engaged in, especially right up and like through the post-war era, and that's when most batches were built, and and that that sort of evolved, and now we have a sort of well, like American-style holiday home. I mean, there's sort of like the really high-end, architectural, tasteful, you know, beautiful, responding to nature product, and then there's the kind of mansion in the canal development type thing mm. with your yacht. So that, I mean, there's a lot of different ways of of you know, they're all batches in a way, um, but some people might argue that they're not true batches because you're not giving up any comforts. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, what I, I think what most people imagine these houses, um, I think at the moment they're proposing five on the site, which is hugely, like, the site's really big. Um, and they, I imagine they would be the kind of architecture-designed, architect-designed, beautiful views, kind of millionaire summer house yeah this is fascinating thanks for such a descriptive explanation of the kind of conception of the batch historically because I suppose it places like us in in context of camping and leisure Mm. and how solitude in nature was not linked per se to 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 leisure uh Mm. historically it was it was linked to I suppose different different forms of well-being or maybe of escape. At least for me, the main thing that sticks out is is the idea of the modern day batch 
having to tap into bulk infrastructure and bulk mm. infrastructure being, I mean, like, where does the surge go? Where does the water go? Where, you know, the electricity poles, like that, that shit looks disgusting all the time. And we can't avoid that. We're not engineers, but, and they should do better. It, it will be interesting to see if there are any proposals that sort of re-envision and, and use marketing to their advantage because in, in that consumption world, marketing can be quite an, a, key, a key player in romanticizing simple life without the need for bulk infrastructure in terms of development with a growing population. And how does one, how does one reconcile the land with the, the idea that we are growing and, and people sort of have a, a right to, to enjoying public land? I mean... Yeah, I mean, this is the thing and, and kind of the thing that's at the heart of the batch kind of paradox is that like um, this kind of idea that now the coast is this highly privatized, commodified and really expensive landscape that's now really elite when it didn't used to be. The paradox comes from, well, if we all had access to the landscape, then what does that mean for the landscape? So mm -hmm. it is a really inherent kind of thing of, I want my own piece that no one can come and ruin. Like that is the kind of heart of it. And I think no one really wants to admit it. Um, they kind mm -hmm. of discuss it on the guise of like, oh, I want to protect it, you know, because of its inherent natural value. But really it's about stopping others from coming in you know the outdoors is a really big part of of like holiday culture i'm not really sure so the batch is a kind of tiny house i mean there there is a bit of that commodification like happening and i don't really know i mean instagram is full of them <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> um, the landscape I, of consumption yeah <laughs> it's weird though because i mean there is still a really there are still people who are living genuinely off grid um, and and like, you know, going out off, off the beat, like the literal beaten track in the South Island, people who, I mean, there were two people who got lost and found during the pandemic in the middle of kind of where it was, like Fjordland or something. Like people do engage with that and they do maintain that there is something about it that is beyond kind of what is portrayed in this commodified view of you know what being in the landscape is and being in wilderness is um it's like a really deeply kind of psychological mm. and kind of um personal connection with something like I don't know if it's like an internal thing or whatever but yeah yeah that's a I suppose really a good way for us to kind of conclude mm -hmm. and yeah I find that it also sounds really confrontational mm -hmm. uh because we've kind of lost our, or it seems as though we've lost our, our instinctive connection to nature that we're at the point of questioning how to, how to be in it without these things that we've created, which is mm. absurd. But tell us how we can follow your work so we can see more batches, more sustainability, <laughs> <laughs> and return to ourselves once again. No pressure. Uh, of course. Um. I guess there's my fieldwork blog that that is very sparse at the moment. Um, but I'm posting things there that I find. Well, I'm planning on posting things that I kind of come across. I suppose you can also find all of our work on the Cambridge DRS oh, yeah, yeah. design research site. Yeah, and it'll be on the link yeah. as well. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Hey, Instagram? No? No? Just um, 
my, my personal Instagram is just cats, so maybe not, but. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. There will yeah. be many cat followers, just so you know, we're not sponsored by any cats. <laughs> Real cats. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Charlotte, for, for the conversation today. This has been extremely interesting. Mm-hmm.